Think of this. Somehow, because God wants it to be so, you can actually speak to Him in prayer, person to person, and you have the assurance that He listens. Can you imagine that? Let's pray. Lord, thank You so much. Thank You for a song like that that reminds us of the good news we believe, the good news Your Son is. Lord, I'm entering into depths that I don't really understand. I'm grateful for them, but I, I can't begin to get to the bottom of them. Thank you for loving us the way this passage tells us that you do. Help us rest in it, and if there's a single person here who doesn't have that assurance of your love, who is only hoping but not knowing for certain that, Jesus, you are their Savior, may this be the day that they humble themselves, trust you, and are saved. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You'll need your Bibles this morning. You always will. If you brought it with you, please open it to Mark chapter 15. If you didn't bring it with you, please find one in the pew near you and look with me in Mark's gospel. Four gospels, four portraits of the life of Jesus that complement each other, give you His life scene by scene, all leading to what we're reading this morning in Mark chapter 15. On Wednesday night, we had a, a wonderful parent meeting with parents of junior high and high school students, and, and God really blessed and met, I think, there with us. We came to some really good understanding and some commitments, and one of the things we're inviting you I personally, as a pastor, am inviting all of you families who have junior and senior high school students, beginning at least at that age, worship together as a family, not in separate services, but in the same service. If you're, if you're no longer cool enough to sit with your kid, I totally understand that. That was, my, that was my point of view when I was in high school, but we are inviting you to worship together, to hear a sermon together, so that you can discuss it on the way home so that you can ask your student what they learned, what they thought of it, what questions they have, what doubts they have about what they're hearing. And as we made that case to parents of the great value that we see in that, one of the very understandable and reasonable questions or concerns that people have is that perhaps their student won't understand everything that's in the sermon. This sermon, what I'm about to share with you, is one of those times where, I'll be honest with you, there's not a single person in the room, including and beginning with me, that really understands what we're seeing at the cross of Christ in Mark chapter 15. I'm just going to acknowledge to you on the front side, much brighter minds than mine, and I've been reading some of them even this morning have marveled and wondered and questioned and written a great deal about what happened historically to Jesus on the cross as Mark tells us in his gospel. It's very likely that Mark's gospel was related to him from Peter's point of view. Mark was a close associate, a disciple of Peter's, and it's very likely historically, we can't be entirely sure, but it sure looks like from what history and Scripture itself tells us that Mark gets much of the things he's used by God to record in his gospel from the eyewitness experience of Peter himself. 
And you can understand a great deal. God meant to be understood when he wrote his word. Please never forget that. God's not playing hard to get. He is pursuing his fallen, broken, sinful creation in love, and he means, he means to be understood. He's not deliberately cryptic unless it's only to invite you to ponder, to pause, to sit there a little longer and think about what he's telling you. But, and here come the depths, here's the difficulty, here's the challenge that I have in trying to come to some kind of understanding of what's happening at the cross and the, de and the challenge you'll have in understanding it. When we come to the very core of the death of Jesus, which is expressed in some heartbreaking words that he spoke from the cross, you're dealing with God himself the eternal God that the Bible presents in the very first words of the Bible without explanation and without apology. Genesis 1 verse 1 just says, in the beginning God created, and there He is. No explanation, no apology. He just is. He's the first cause. He's the one who was always there. Already I'm a little lost. Because I'm mortal, I have a beginning and I'll have an end, but I, I can't understand something that simply is. And yet this is what Scripture tells us, that there is one God, and even more mysteriously, He eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity, the triunity. And people have looked for all kinds of analogies to try to explain that. Most of them are failures. They just don't really explain what the Bible tells you about this unfathomably important, eternal, always existent, loving, righteous, wise, powerful person. Friends, somebody say, well, it's, it's like an egg, right? It's got three parts. No. That doesn't quite make it. It's not that Jesus is one-third of God and the Father is another third and the Holy Spirit is another third. And together, they're like a pie that come together. It's not like that. It's, it's different. But let me reassure you. You should never be overly intimidated or fail to believe in what God is telling you about Himself only because you can't completely understand it. Because what many of you already know, what God has invited you into is a personal relationship. In other words, you're in a loving, personal relationship with another person who is not a mere human being. This is the person who made all the other persons. This is eternal God who made all the human beings. And if you're in any kind of a personal relationship, much less a relationship with God, there's going to be a great deal that you don't understand about that other person, as any married person will tell you. Men, do you totally understand your wives? Wives, do you totally understand your husbands? No. Why is that? You're just human beings. You were born probably around the same time. You had probably very similar experiences. You likely speak the same language, and yet we're sometimes, it seems, worlds apart. Why is that? Because each person is different and unfathomable. And being made in the image of God, there are depths within each of us that other people can never truly grasp. In fact, that's even true about yourself. There's a great deal about yourself that you don't understand. Have you ever asked yourself, why did I do that? 
It's kind of an absurd question. You were there. <laughs> You've known yourself almost your entire life. You've thought about yourself, given yourself more thought, more care, more intentions, and more love. You've given more of that to yourself than you have to any other person, and you don't even understand yourself. Why? Because personhood is real and relatable, but it's deep. And now you come to the cross of Christ, and you're seeing the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, actually die. Because the eternal God in the person of Jesus Christ stepped into human history, was born of a woman, a virgin woman, because He is the Son of God, had a perfectly ordinary, frail human existence where He suffered hunger and thirst and rejection, where He grew tired, where He was often tempted with depths that you and I will never understand, we'll never understand that either, and now, by God's own plan, He's actually dying. Let me read it to you in Mark chapter 15. After a, after a complete mockery of a trial, Jesus is beaten, mocked, led out to the site of His crucifixion. And in Mark 15 verse 21, it says this, they compelled a passerby Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Notice there's several names in that verse. It's a man named Simon from a place, Cyrene, and he's the father of two people, Alexander and Rufus. Why are these details here? Because Mark is relating to you human history. This is not a once upon a time story. He's talking to you about ordinary people, in Simon's case, who did not expect to be there and be compelled to do what he was done, what they forced him to do, to carry the cross of Jesus. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh. That's a crude painkiller from the ancient world. But he did not take it. Jesus wants nothing to do with it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And notice the economy of words in Mark's account of the crucifixion of Jesus. It just says they crucified him. No details. It's almost as if it is something so horrifying it's like a person remembering an accident that took their loved one. And all they can bring themselves to say is, and that's the day I lost her. And they do not go into the details because they're too painful. He adds one callous, heartbreaking detail. The Roman soldiers, the professional killers who put Jesus to death, actually gamble for his clothing. We don't know who these men are, but they are likely very experienced in the art of crucifixion. They're tools of the Roman state, and crucifixion is an act of state-sponsored fear to tell everyone across the empire, but particularly you there, if you were walking on a road and saw a crucified man, this is what happens to those who defy Rome. And in their callousness, they discover that Jesus 
this actually impoverished man who often suffered human needs that should have been supplied by the world he made had a few garments of value, and they callously gamble at the foot of his cross, playing a game of chance to see who would take what little Jesus owned as loot after his death. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. It's an ancient way of telling time. It was 9 a.m. when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days... Save yourself and come down from the cross. And this is an ignorant or perhaps deliberate misunderstanding of a promise that Jesus had made them. The temple he would destroy, that would be destroyed, was not the actual temple, not yet. It's his own body. He's promised his resurrection before they killed him. But now they take that promise, which is for their sake, and they use it to mock him. And in verse 30, they say, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. And they're wrong. He actually can save himself. He's told Peter, the fisherman who clumsily tried to defend him with force, that he has an innumerable host of angels awaiting his bidding to come and rescue him. All he has to say is enough. Send them. Save me. And he will be saved, but he won't be. Not on this day, because he's dying for the people who are killing him. I messaged a friend earlier this morning and said, is Holy Week is upon us. We're at the beginning of the end of the greatest story of love and courage and sacrifice ever told. Jesus is consciously dying, deliberately dying, just as He promised in fulfillment of prophecies that were written up to a thousand years before He was born. At any point, at any time, He can put it into it, but He will not. And he dies in a hail of mockery from the crosses around him. Verse 32, let the Christ, the King of Israel, hear the sarcasm? Let the one God anointed, that's what Christ means, let the King of Israel, this dying poor man on the cross, it's mockery, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. In other words, the men that are dying beside him curse him as well. But another gospel tells you that in the space of those few hours that Jesus was on the cross between them, one of them thought better of it and told the other man, we deserve what we're getting. He's done nothing wrong. Have you no fear of God? 
And that little detail tucked away in another gospel is one of the greatest tributes to God's mercy that a man who knows he deserves execution and is actually acknowledging as he dies that he's getting what he deserves in that moment turns to Jesus for mercy and says to Jesus, remember me. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. I mean, hours before his death. He turned to Jesus in trust and repentance and humility, asked Jesus to save him, and Jesus promised that he would. Because this death is not for the sake of Jesus. It's not for anyone's sake but our own. Verse 33, when the sixth hour, in other words, when noon, when high noon had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And Mark, with his spare style, just tells you what happened. No one knows exactly why. I can't prove it, but I've always imagined that it is something like the creation giving its creator a little privacy in the midst of the worst of his suffering. I don't want to be too poetic and personify nature too much, but it's as if nature itself cannot bear to see what is happening to the king and the origin of life itself. For three hours, there is miraculous supernatural darkness. When the sun should have been burning brightest, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, until, in other words, until 3 p.m. And here we come to the depths. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that brings you right into the heart of the Trinity, the nature, the existence, the reality of who God is, the God that you don't get and I don't get to edit or redefine to make sure that he fits inside my own little mind. That's true of every personal relationship. Just because I don't understand all of you doesn't mean I get to say that you don't exist or edit out the parts of you that I find incomprehensible. You are who you are, and God is who God is, and the godness of God, as philosophers would say, is one God eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus, who spoke so lovingly and tenderly and with the affectionate familiarity of a person within the fellowship of the Trinity, Father to Son, with such, such affection and such confidence his entire life, now speaks to God with these words, my God, my God. And he asks a terrible question, a question so profound that scholars have named it. Anytime anything gets a label or a category in a field of study, you know it's important. And they call this the cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All these analogies for the Trinity fail. J.I. Packer, a great theologian, said perhaps the best is simply this. God is a team. Because there's one team composed by many persons. What is happening here? People have struggled so hard to understand this that in recent years, theologians have actually done what amounts to breaking the Trinity. 
For the Son breaks apart from the Father because of the Father's indignation with the Son, and that can't possibly be right. I don't think that's true. But I understand the struggle. I read greater minds than mine, and it's not hard to find a better mind than mine. Bright people who have loved God with all their heart have been pondering this passage for centuries. Martin Luther was just one of them. Some 500 years ago, the story is told that he sits in his study for hours looking at this one verse. Wild Luther was so quiet and so reserved and so locked in that the story says people were checking on him to see if he were all right, and he finally pushed back from his desk and said this, God forsaking God, who can understand this? People have rightly observed that Jesus is not speaking originally. He's actually quoting Psalm 22, which turns out to be, if you look in your Bible, you don't have to, but that's its opening line, turns out to be a Psalm of David written a thousand years earlier, where David, from intense personal suffering in his own life, in his own time, feels the abandonment by God, as maybe you have, when you've mistakenly thought that God has forsaken you and walked away from you. And Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher, says, I can understand why David would write these words, but they don't make any sense to me at all on the lips of Jesus, the Son of God. And he's right. What's happening here? Well, Jesus, eternal God who became a human being, is entering fully into our experience. He has been tempted as a man without sin, and now he is paying the price for sins he did not commit, entering fully into our experience so that he could take our place. And no one around the cross can understand it. And the passage itself rescues me from a lot of theological speculation. The passage itself gives me a great idea of what was happening here, even as I acknowledge that I don't begin to understand everything that God is doing. Look at the reaction of the crowd in verse 35. Some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come take him down. What do you think? Does the crowd understand it? Can they begin to appreciate what is being done for them? Not for a moment. They're actually taking crude measures to see if they can extend his life, to see if they can see some kind of spectacular miracle. But Jesus knows what he's doing. Jesus knows what he's about. Verse 37, Mark reports, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Another gospel tells us that the death of Jesus was voluntary, purposeful. In other words, as he had promised, no one took his life from him. And we dare not fracture the Trinity or break who God is apart in what is happening here, as some even popular songs tend to do, trying to make sense of the mysteries that we're reading here. No, all of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has anticipated this day, planned and sacrificed toward this day. 
Jesus himself said in John chapter 10 that no one takes my life from me. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to pick it back up. And then he says, this charge I have received from my Father. And it's mysterious. I'm telling you, I'm taking you into deep waters and trying to fathom them myself. But you can see the interplay between two persons in the Trinity as Jesus says, I'm doing this, but I'm also doing this in obedience to my Father. I have the will to do this, to sacrifice my life, and I also do it because it pleases my Father, who I'm always observing and doing what He wants. Why is that? Because He's taking your place and mine. His thoughts, his mind, his emotions, his motives are all pure and holy. Every single bit of human experience is being lived by Jesus as an actual human being when the Word became flesh so that he can offer all of that in my place. Because I don't know if you've noticed how hard it is to be right, to be righteous. Have you noticed? You ever do the right thing and then ruin it by being proud of yourself? (laughs) Ever been genuinely kind, loving, humble to other people and congratulated yourself as you noticed what a swell person you are? In that moment, it's ruined. In that moment, you derive some attention back to yourself. You want the glory. There's no telling even how much our good things, our righteous things are actually shot through with self-motivation, with pride, with self-protection. With Jesus, not a trace of it. Every point of his life. That's why Luke tells us of his childhood and even says that he went home. The gospel tells us that Jesus went home with his parents and submitted to them Even as a boy, Jesus is doing what boys don't. He's obeying his parents. He's keeping one of the Ten Commandments. He's going to keep all of the commandments, and he is going to stand between us and the right justice of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it is not true that the Father has no love for the Son, feels wrath for the Son, because remember, this was the Father's idea too, because... Jesus told us in the most famous verse of all, for who loved the world? God so loved the world that He did what? He gave His only Son. So who is saving the world? God is. God in all of His beautiful, unified, Trinitarian existence is saving the world. The Father fulfilling the plan and keeping the promise to save. The Son actually dying on the cross. The Holy Spirit abiding and waiting to provide that new life to anyone who has ever trusted Jesus. All of God. All for your sake. And the crowd doesn't get it. But verse 38 tells me what it all means. Again, I can't get to the depths of it. I can't get my arms around it. But verse 38 tells me in a Jewish way of speaking, what's happening here. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Jesus voluntarily dies. He gives up his spirit, another gospel tells me. In other words, he's not like many people whose death I've witnessed that fight it to the very end. Jesus decides to give his life away because he told the truth. No one can take his life from him. He gives it. 
in love for sinful people, in obedience to the Father who also loves people to provide the regeneration through the Holy Spirit that will come, sent also by the Father. Deep stuff, but it's all happening for the sake of people. And verse 38 says that at the precise moment that Jesus voluntarily gave up His life, something extraordinary happened, not at the cross, but at a good distance from there in the temple. A curtain was torn. And this can only mean the curtain between the holy place and the holiest place. And for those who understood Jewish culture and religion, they would remember that according to the law of God, there was a place that only one man, the high priest, could enter, and he could only do so with blood, and he could only do so once a year. And that generations of priests in the tabernacle and in the temple have done this for Israel and all kinds of furnishings that remind them and picture the glory of God are provided, but not a chair for the priest. He is always on his feet as, an, as a constant reminder to people, we're not done here. And only one man can go into that place. And only once a year and only with the right sacrifice. But now Mark takes you sharply away from the cross, takes you inside the temple and invites you with his spare style of just a few words to marvel at a miracle of a thick curtain being torn. And did you notice its direction? Here's a Bible reading tip. When the Bible slows down and gives you details, pay attention because the details matter. How was the curtain torn? From top to bottom. Not from side to side, not from bottom to top. It was torn from top to bottom. It's a picture to people who could understand it that it is God who is doing the tearing. The place into the fellowship of the most holy God is now open. That's what Jesus was doing on the cross. He was opening acceptance into the very presence of God to people who did not qualify and do not deserve it. Here's the simple, amazing message of Mark chapter 15. Jesus was forsaken so that you could be accepted. Accepted. Loved. Cherished. Forgiven. Understood cared for all those beautiful things that you find in a genuine personal relationship. In other words, genuine acceptance and love is the greatest thing that anyone ever hungers for. It's what too many people are seeking in wrong places and in wrong ways and finding more misery there because they know deep in their hearts they are not truly loved. Alienation, rejection, hatred, separation, those things are so wounding that to feel them changes people often for the rest of their lives. As a pastor and chaplain, I've addressed many groups before who were hated because of their uniform or the color of their skin. And no one has actually done them any physical harm, but they're suffering and it's changing them. Simply knowing that other people hate them, even if they never touch them, is destructive to human beings. You were made to be loved. That's why in our system of criminal justice, the worst thing that they do to people short of killing them, which is exceedingly rare, the worst thing that they do to people is just put them all alone and keep all the other human beings away from them. 
You can provide a man or a woman every creature comfort, provide them every single thing they need, but deny them human contact, and most people within the space of a few days will start having serious psychiatric problems because you were made not for rejection, not for alienation. You were made to love and be loved, and you never tire of it. If you are one of those blessed few who has genuinely been loved by at least one person, you know that you never tire of that. You go, well, you haven't met my husband. Yeah, well, that's true. Maybe I haven't. But let me explain. You may tire of that person's quirks. You may get tired of their personality. You might be tired of the clumsy ways they try to show love. Certainly true in my case. My wife gets up exceedingly early, and to get herself through the day depends on bumping praise music and coffee first thing in the morning. And I, for joy of seeing a new day and seeing that she's still with me, often get up and dance around her while she tries to get ready. And she thinks things like this, if you want this to continue, you need to stop doing that right now. Well, She's not tiring of being loved. She's just tired of my stupid dancing, my awkward way of showing it. But if you're ever really loved, you can't ever get enough of that. And that's what Jesus is doing on the cross, sent there by the Father, driven there by the ministry and the person of the Holy Spirit. All of God, the unity of God in three glorious equal persons is working together to save anyone who will trust Jesus. And very few people understand it. Verse 39, when the centurion who stood facing him, that's a Roman soldier, an officer in charge of dozens of others, When the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God and the most unlikely witness of the crucifixion of Jesus, a Roman soldier who oversaw his execution. He understands. There's just a few other people around the cross, and it may not be who you might expect. There were also women looking on from a distance among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Why are the women there? Because they love him. And they are trusting perhaps in the protection of their gender that they will not be persecuted and perhaps killed the way his disciples fear. Where are the disciples? They've run for their lives. So here is Jesus, rejected by practically everyone, loved and trusted and followed only by a few, believed on in his last hours and in the moment of his death by a man who acknowledges he deserves his killing and a Roman centurion who sees the way Jesus died and said, it must be true. What they say about this man simply must be true. Truly, this was the Son of God and Jesus is doing all of it Enduring that unimaginable, unfathomable separation, that punishment, that alienation, which you've never felt because God has always loved you, and to this day, He's extending to you grace and mercy. And no living person 
can ever say that they really don't know what it's like to be loved by God, but the fullness of God's love is there, dying on the cross in the person of Jesus, Jesus being forsaken so that you could be accepted. In closing, I'd like to take you to the one of the greatest sentences ever written in the Bible. And watch, let you watch Paul try to tell some former pagans in the city of Ephesus all that this love meant for them. Look with me, please, in your Bible in Ephesians chapter 1. This is how you were loved. This is what it means to be accepted. This is what the forsakenness of Jesus provides to you. Ephesians chapter 1, everybody have it? Here's a little grammar note. We're going to read, I'm going to read and make very brief comments from 3 to verse 14. And you can't see it in English because the translators are good at what they do, and they've broken it up for us in English so that we can make sense of it. But if you knew Greek, you would realize something. Chapter, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14 is a single sentence in Greek. More than 200 words. Now, if you were an English teacher, what would you, uh, how would you grade that particular piece of writing? What do we call those? A run-on sentence. And right after that, in verse 15, starts another. What's happening here? Is God a bad author? Is Paul not very bright? No. It's purposeful. It's as if he can barely lift his pen from the paper in the great joy of telling the Ephesians, these idol-worshiping, occultic, witchcraft-practicing Ephesians, how deeply they are loved because of what Jesus did on the cross. Look, it's a word of praise. It's a blessing to God in thanks for all that He did for us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In other words, this has all happened and it's as if it happened in heaven where it's secure and unchanging. Even as He, the Father, even as He chose us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, that's what's driving all this. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And here Paul uses the first term to begin to tell you the many dimensions and depths of the love of God. The first thing he says is this, God adopted you. And that's a beautiful picture of the love of God because we joke, you can't choose your family, but you do when you adopt. Someone who cannot be obligated to love another person and to rescue them welcomes them into their own family under their responsibility and at their expense to love them. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. In other words, and He'll get the credit, and that same grace which we praise, He is with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Here's another term. In Him we have redemption through His blood. Redemption was the price to set a, fr a slave free in the ancient world. 
It's the blood of Jesus that sets us free from our sin. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. In other words, when we go too far and break God's rules, go past His boundaries, our conscience accuses us. It's the death, it's the blood of Jesus that forgives that. According to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will. In other words, we did not understand what God was doing, but we do now because of Jesus. According to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In other words, our own salvation and welcome into the family of God is only one part in God setting everything right in this ruined world. In Him we have obtained an inheritance. And that makes sense because if we've been adopted into the family of God... Not only are we safe and loved, we're also rich. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. In other words, whatever was happening on the cross of Jesus, it was happening because that's the way God wanted it. So that we, Paul speaking of himself as a Jew, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him, you also, in other words, you, you Gentile pagans who knew nothing of this, in Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. There's all of God, saving everyone who puts their belief in Jesus. The Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Did you get that? No, you didn't. I didn't either. You could spend the rest of your Christian life, and I would invite you to spend at least the rest of this month just reading Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. It's all there. This is how God loved you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, let me read it to you in a different translation that does a good job in making this plain. Listen, this is how you were loved. This is how you were accepted because Jesus was forsaken. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before He made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in His eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into His own family by bringing us to Himself through Jesus Christ. This is what He wanted to do, and it gave Him great pleasure, so we praise God for the glorious grace He has poured out on us, to, on us who belong to His dear Son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that He purchased our freedom with the blood of His Son and forgave us our sins. He has showered His kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. God has now revealed to us His mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill His own good plan. And this is the plan. At the right time, He will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God. For He chose us in advance, and He makes everything work out according to His plan. 
God's purpose was that we Jews who were the first to trust in Christ would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believe in Christ, He identified you as His own by giving you the Holy Spirit whom He promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that He will give us the inheritance He promised and that He has purchased us to be His own people. He did this so we would praise and glorify Him. That's how you're loved. See, the world is a seething ruin on its worst days, and we all know it because we're rejected, we're mistreated, we suffer, we struggle, we're continually having to guard ourselves against the intentions of other people who may wish to hurt us in some way. Into all that chaos, all of that sin, all of that destruction stepped God Himself, and Jesus bore the forsakenness of God's judgment so that you could be totally accepted and loved instead. This is the best news about the best person that anyone will ever tell you. And next Sunday on Resurrection Sunday and the services that start on Saturday, all we're going to do is celebrate and tell the story again because the resurrection proves that the death was worth it and the death achieved what God decided it should. That's how loved you are. Let's pray. I'd like to give you a moment, if you know Jesus, to thank Him. Adoption, redemption, forgiveness, inheritance. Those are just sides to the diamond of God's love. That's how much He loves you, cares for you, accepts you. Just thank Him. No matter how others may have mistreated you, abandoned you, not wanted you, told you they loved you and showed you by their actions something very different. This is the love, this is the acceptance of God on the cross for your sake so you could be loved that way. And maybe with this many people here this morning, maybe you don't have the assurance of salvation. Maybe this all sounds amazing to you, too good to be true, but if you're very honest with yourself, you're just not sure that you're loved and saved this way. Here's my invitation to you. Turn to Jesus. See Him dying on the cross, enduring forsakenness so that you could have acceptance and forgiveness instead. Tell Him that you understand and you're sorry because it's your sins, not His, that put Him on that cross. Thank Him that He refused to come off the cross because He was dying for your sake to give you life instead of His death. And say to Him, Jesus, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus, remember me. Save me. And he will. 
It's what he intended to do. It's what he determined to do when he died for your sins. But it's a personal relationship. There must be trust. There must be belief. You have to stop believing in yourself and start trusting in him if ever you will be saved. And if you call out to him in prayer, all I ask is that you take the card in your bulletin and let us know that today you've stepped across the line of faith and you've put your trust, not in a church, not in a preacher, not in a do-better system, but you've put your faith in Jesus. Father, thank you for the gratitude and the worship in our prayers. Thank you for the one or the many who are turning to you and asking you to save them right now. If there's even a single person who needs that assurance, I pray that they would turn to you at this exact moment and say, Jesus, I'm sorry. You died for me. It was my sins. I'm guilty. I'm wrong. You're right. Please save me. Make me your disciple. Teach me to love you. And Father, receive this offering. It's not an effort of repayment. It's grateful obedience from people you have saved and for whom everything is already secure in heaven. That we may obey you, learn to trust you, do good, Lord, through the blessings that these offerings will do and the good news it'll extend around the world. Receive our song and our gratitude as we give in Christ's name. Amen.